You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we got a lot to talk about today. The UFC over the weekend obviously had its fight night event headlined by Jose Aldo and Rob Font. There was also a Bellator event where Kyoji Horiguchi and Sergio Pettis fought for the Men's Bantamweight Championship. It is UFC 269 Fight Week, so we got to get into some talk about that as well. But first, the biggest combat sports news of the day. Hell, the biggest combat sports news of the millennium, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Tommy Fury has fumbled the bag again, Ben Folks. He is out of his scheduled matchup with Jake Paul. And lo and behold, our old buddy, Tyron Woodley, who we warned not to get the tattoo, said he wasn't getting this rematch. Well, joke's on us. Because T. Wood is back. He's going to fight Jake Paul a second time coming up later this month. He says he's been training. So uh, we'll see what kind of shape he's in when he gets in there. We'll see if the game plan or the tactics will be any different than the first time around. This just happened today, man. So I got to get your instant reaction to Tyron Woodley and Jake Paul doing it again, brother. Yeah. You know what I like is the... I was wondering when I heard this news, I was like, how is Jake Paul going to sell this one to us? Because the last one, it wasn't exactly a thrilling fight. Tyron Woodley again did the Tyron Woodley thing where you look at him and you think he has opportunities to knock this man clean out and he just doesn't really go for it and it's frustrating. And that felt like a trick that could really only work once. Once per opponent, really, for Jake Paul. And then when he has to make this last-minute pivot to a rematch with Tyron Woodley, I was like, Jake Paul, one thing we know about him, the guy is a salesman. He he, he knows how to self-promote. So what is he going to do to convince people to pony up money to see this one after they just saw it? And then I got my answer when he said he is putting into the contract. This I saw, via, I think, via like Nolan King. I, I want to say it was him on Twitter who said, Jake Paul's advisor says that they are putting it into the contract that Tyron Woodley gets an extra 500 grand if he knocks Jake Paul out. He is giving somebody a knockout bonus against himself. Yeah. And that bonus is, let's say, sizable. Way more sizable than any kind of bonus you could get in the UFC. And I went, God damn it, he's done it. He's found a way to at least give you... A little, a little inkling of interest in this fight now to offer that much money to Tyron Woodley. Come knock me out, and it's yours. And God damn it, it kind of worked on me. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not sitting here right now and committing to you that I will pay the sixty dollars and watch this one again. Um, but doesn't it feel like he did find a way to add a little? a little spice to the mixture, a little extra salesmanship in there. This guy actually knows how to sell you a fight. 
Yeah, and you know, Tyron Woodley came somewhat close the first time around. There was a close call there in the middle of their first fight, so I do think it'll be interesting to see what happens when they get in there again. Like we we just talked last week over on the Patreon page about Tyron Woodley talking about how he was going to have a big 2022 saying he was yeah. going to fight four times in four different combat sport disciplines. But at the yeah. same time, but he time, also it was kind of vague. His plans were a little, he, he trailed off a little bit yeah, at the end when listing all his plans, making it sound like he didn't have uh exact plans for what he was going to do, <laughs> yes. but that he was going to have a, a big 2022. Now he's going to get this chance in just a couple weeks where we assume another big payday here against Jake Paul to fight him a second time. Uh, I saw it being kicked around somewhere online that Tyron Woodley undefeated in rematches during his okay. MMA career. I believe maybe he only had one or two, but there you go. Uh, how how does I want to see how he approaches his second fight because it's like it's like it's almost like he got a new damn lease on life to go out here and fight Jake Paul a second time. I know I'm just tilting at windmills here, uh, wishing into a bucket, but. I'd like to think that if Tyron Woodley, Tyron Woodley gets a second chance to go out there and fight Jake Paul, maybe he can realize that the Tyron Woodley, the stock Tyron Woodley approach could be what failed him in the first fight. And maybe... Oh, I mean, okay, you're you're doing this to yourself now, man. Maybe. You, you know what? You, you, we get a more times, active Tyron Woodley. How many times did we say that to ourselves in some of his MMA fights. See, you're talking about how the Jake Paul sales pitch worked on you. I'm pitching myself <laughs> over here. I'd, I, I, I want to see how Tyron Woodley fights Jake Paul a second time. You are the Steve Carell from The Office. I am ready to be hurt again meme. That's what you are. Maybe. You are living it. Um, when I was talking about this on Twitter earlier, our dude John Nash, uh, who always has his ear to the ground on fighter pay and financial issues and whatnot, pointed out that Tyron Woodley going to go out here and get another one of these big Jake Paul fight paydays. If Who knows? If he knocks him out, gets that extra 500 grand tacked on, that we're going to be sitting here at the end of 2021, and Tyron Woodley is going to be somebody who very recently on the UFC roster who is one of like the top five earners for the year. And that's going to be kind of, kind of insane to think about the kind of shit that we were not predicting this time last year, you know, and more power to him. You know, I just wonder you're taking this fight on kind of short notice. Yeah. I don't know what kind of shape he's been in. I mean, I think he said that he's been training or something, but it, you would be like training for what? The, yeah, he's training the, for that big 2022. He's going to fight four the, times, the four vague, different disciplines. The vague plans where he was going to have a real boxing fight, a fun kind of boxing fight, something interesting in boxing. Who knows which one this is? Um, and then something big for New Year's and then something else in the middle there. And I don't know. Like, do you think that there might be a part of time in Woodley where it was, hey, man, it was just Thanksgiving. Christmas is around the corner. You know, the holiday season, you're, you're eating cookies, you're drinking eggnog, and then the call comes through and you're like, ah, shit. I mean, I can't say no. Because here's my chance to get that money, but also better get in shape real fast. I mean, I guess we'll find out. We don't have long to wait. Over there on the Jake Paul side of things, we had also just talked about the Fury family. And Jake Paul had kind of gotten into it last week about Jake Paul's alleged uh, unwillingness to sign up for VADA drug testing leading up to this fight. So it's 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 just interesting that this uh, Fury pullout comes so 
soon after that like high profile spat they had just been beefing with each other and then you got tommy fury pulling out this week citing a rib injury and a chest infection well i mean how how quickly did did the rib injury just happen over the weekend was the was the chest infection a new thing was a new phenomenon or like had these things been kicking around for a while now it just seems like uh, the, to go from point A to point I dropped out of the fight and fumbled the bag again. It's like, oh, it seems like all this stuff happened really fast. You know, I know what you're doing. You're just asking questions. That's what you're doing, right? Man. You're just, you're, you're just pointing out the questions that need answers and letting everybody else fill in the blanks for you. What you're saying, I mean, what, without saying it. What I'm really saying it, is that like maybe is that, last week, Tommy Fury already know this, knew that he probably wasn't going to go through with this thing. And so he was like, we might as well start laying the groundwork and just basically start talking about how Jake Paul won't do any of this stuff. Uh, I don't know that any of that will help him. It seems like even in the hyper tech savvy combat sports world, it appears that Jake Paul just runs circles around all of us. It seems at all times <laughs> with his ability to control a narrative and like uh, be out there first pretty much. So, well, also maybe Tommy Fury accidentally exposed that when it comes to Jake Paul fights, ain't nobody give a shit if he's on the gas. Like, that's just not what we're doing there. Yeah. We're not out there for the most legitimate combat sports competition we can imagine. And therefore, you know what? Put him on everything and including roller skates and go out there and we'll still maybe buy pay-per-view for 60 bucks. Not me, though, because I I've committed to take my daughter's ice skating. Let me know how it goes. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. Uh, don't forget to go out and follow us on Instagram over at CME if you nasty and like us on Facebook. That's at Facebook.com slash co-main event. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at Patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. We got the Wednesday live chat the Thursday doing the damn thing podcast and the Friday power hour. Uh, we, we, we talk MMA and we talk other stuff too, but, but it's just crazy. Everybody has fun. We got three handy tiers of patronage available over there. If you want to come check us out, we invite you to join the team over at patreoncom slash co-main event. We got music this week from our guy, old school CME fan, Kyle Kelly Yonner who also happens to be a tremendous drummer. He's got a solo project out. It's an EP of instrumental tracks, mostly drums and synth. I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can find the rest of the EP at his website, kyleky.com, or find him at kylekydrums on Instagram. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co Event Podcast. In round number one, Jose Aldo just going to go out here and beat Rob Font and simultaneously challenge every piece of conventional wisdom about his career legacy in the wake of that 13-second loss to Conor McGregor back in 2015. You know, no big deal. And in round number two, young Serge, Sergio Pettis. Spinning back fist victory from the jaws of defeat against Kyoji Horiguchi. Potential knockout of the year. And don't look now.
But Bellator has a men's bantamweight Grand Prix coming our way in 2022. Ignore it at your own peril. And in round number three, this Saturday, UFC 269 once again features two title fights as Dustin Poirier gets another chance to become the undisputed lightweight champion against Chucky Olives. And Amanda Nunes defends against Juliana Pena. And oh God. I hope somebody hides Conor McGregor's phone from him. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from the Corgi King, our old pal. He writes, Clay fucking Guida, exclamation point, exclamation (laughs) point. Please discuss. So Ben... Clay Guida goes out there, gets the comeback. Speaking of snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, Clay Guida out here, second round, rear naked choke, submission win against Leonardo Santos in the middle of the main card of this UFC fight night over on ESPN Plus, picks up a performance of the night bonus to uh, pad his pockets a little bit more for his trouble. Always nice to see one of the old guys, one of the fan faves like Clay Guida go out there and get a win. I'm wondering, uh, maybe on the side we uh, we slide a little tip, a little tip over to uh, Keith Peterson. We, we slip a little, it's like, slide a couple, a stack of 50s. Thanks. No nonsense, Keith Peterson. Thank you for indulging me in some nonsense in this fight because... He could have stopped this, man. Like, like yeah, there were but- multiple opportunities in this first round, especially the second time when Clay Guida gets dropped. If you had stepped in and called it off, Clay Guida might have passed the what the fuck test, but I don't think too many other people would have been complaining. As it stands, Clay right. Guida comes back, gets the win. But no, I, I was going to mention this because that's a good bit of refereeing on Keith Peterson's part because he realized, yes, the initial shots that were dropping Clay Guida were hard and they were landing clean, but you see some of those hammer fists and, and uh, the shots that Santos thrown on there on the ground. They, there wasn't a whole lot to those, you know, Clay Guida was covering up and he was still doing stuff trying to answer back. He wasn't just covering up and staying there for an extended period of time. He was digging for the leg, even at times when it seemed like a bad idea and he wasn't even anywhere close to getting it. He was responsive and he wasn't taking a ton of damage once he was down. Like it was just sort of being like peppered shots. A lot of like hammer fists land into the, the glove of Clay Guida as he was covering up his head, stuff like that. Keith Peterson had, had a experienced eye on this. He knows Clay Guida. He knows that that's a veteran fighter in there. Uh, he, he's looking for signs that he is intelligently defending himself and, and Clay Guida was doing it. But you know what I loved is that after just one of these first round barrages in which it seems like Clay Guida is seconds away from being finished at all times. And you can hear Clay Guida's corner say something like, all right, now you got him. <laughs> like he's tired now. And at the time they said it, it felt, let's say hopeful more than real strategy. It was just kind of, we got to tell him something. We got to put a positive spin on this because it did not really seem like things were going Clay Guida's way. It didn't seem yet like like there was a lot of fatigue on the other side. But then within a minute or two, you start to think, oh, holy shit, maybe they were right. It does actually seem like he's tiring out, like maybe he blew his wad a little bit there and Clay Guida can come on. And all you had to do was take, you know, roughly 70 shots somewhere in there and still be conscious and alert 
That's all you had to do. I not saying it was the game plan. Not saying it's what you want to hear from your corner. That okay. That's it. He he tired himself out beating the shit out of you, and now it's your turn. And yet it actually worked out exactly that way. Yeah. Kind of amazing. If I had to guess, it was probably Jason Guido, right? Over there yelling probably. get on that fucking leg <laughs> over and over again. Uh Ben Clay Guida, as I mentioned, an elder statesman in this sport at this point, 39 years old, he's going to turn uh, 40 uh, in two days, by the way, coming up this week. He, he came in, he's looking a little more distinguished these days, you know, he's still got the long hair, but like, a yeah, let's, let's just say he's looking distinguished out there. The hairline has moved back a little bit. It has, it has indeed. Uh, as you mentioned over on comainevent.com last week, it looks like he's doing a lot of fishing, at least as interested in the fishing game as he yeah. is in the fight game at this point. Uh, but he's a fan favorite. He's a well-liked guy. He's got the infectious enthusiasm. It felt good to come out there and see him get the win. How much, if any, do you think that this most recent stage of Clay Guida's career has to do with the matchups that he's getting. Because we've talked before about, hey, man, you get up there in years in the UFC, like, you know, chances are at some point you're going to start looking like a stepping stone to matchmakers and opponents alike. And they're going to start serving you up these matchups against young guys that they feel like could make their name off you. We've seen it happen on multiple occasions with a guy like Donald Cerrone, for example. Against Clay Guida... We haven't seen a ton of that, man. Like th- this stretch that he is on right now, where he is uh, three and four overall. Uh, he did fight Charles Oliveira back in 2018, so I guess you gotta you gotta chalk that one up to a bit of touch tough match matchmaking, considering what we've seen from Chucky Olive since then. But after that, here are his fights. He goes B.J. Penn, Jim Miller, Bobby Green, Michael Johnson, Mark Madsen, and then most recently, Leonardo Santos in a fight where Santos, uh, who is also in his 40s, 41 years old, came in yeah, off, he's older. As his, Jesus. Uh, off his KO loss to, to Grant Dawson in March of this year. So it's not like this one shaped up as a fight where they were like, hey, let's let's get Leonardo Santos over here with a win over Clay Guida. If anything, this seems like, you know, competitive matchmaking. How much, if if anything, do you put in, in that as a factor here that Clay Guida appears to be getting like, hey, man, let's age you out of this thing somewhat uh, uh, gracefully sort of matchmaking and not like, hey, man, here is the new 21-year-old undefeated Dagestani that we feel like we'll be making waves two years from now. Yeah, I mean, he's getting peers, is what you're saying. Rather than matching him up against yeah, uh, some guy like who's 28 and coming up the ranks and you're looking to add a little shine to him, he's getting people who, regardless of experience level, are around his age. Like, even the the last loss, the split decision to Mark Madsen, Mark Madsen's in his you know mid-late 30s. Uh, the UFC might see a little bit more of a future there with him, but he's still, like, 37. So, uh, I mean, I guess I would counter... If we, if what you're saying is Clay Guida has been allowed to hang around a little bit longer and be, you know, at least somewhat successful a little longer because we didn't do the usual fight sports thing of just feeding the old to the young, uh, did we learn that maybe this is a workable strategy? Because I wouldn't think that we really lost anything by not seeing Clay Guida murdered by, you know, some 30-year-old Dagestani dude. I wouldn't say that... 
it's made it harder to promote other people in the division who you're excited about and who are young up-and-comers. It seems like maybe this is a way like that you've kind of shown yourself that it could be done this other way. And it won't make us as sad. And maybe you can get a little more mileage out of it. Maybe even the Just Some Fights era has more room or need for stuff like this. Is that if you could keep some of these people around and give them competitive fights rather than just getting their block knocked off for a cheap thrill, then you can still have people who are known to us around to populate some of these fight night cards. Yeah. It also taught us that no matter how old you get, it's still okay for your mom to come to your fight wearing a shirt that says she's your mom. I mean, I mentioned it in that story uh, that I wrote about Clay Guida on Friday about how when I was in his locker room in 2008 for a fight in Omaha, the thing he got most excited about while sitting around for his pre-fight preparations, which he took you know, very nonchalantly, was when somebody came in and was like, bro, your mom is sitting with the guys from 311 which I mentioned it was 2008, but now I'm really telling you it was 2008. They said, your mom's sitting with the guys from 311 and a couple of the Foo Fighters. And he immediately like sat up excited and was like, Dave Grohl? And they're like, no, not Dave Grohl. The other guys. And then he was like, oh, still cool. Yeah. Still cool. Still cool. Next question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner, who writes, of all the fights I thought that would make me sad. I did not expect it to be Brad Riddell versus Raphael Fazeev. Maybe it was the commentary team continually referencing the fighter's pre-existing friendship, coupled with the sudden and violent end to the fight, just when Riddell seemed to be putting together a winning round. Fun fight for striking nerds, though. Stay frosty. Uh, you know what this was? I can't think of any other phrase to describe Raphael Fazeev versus Brad Riddell besides bad motherfucker fight. This yep. was a fight between two bad motherfuckers who were just out there swinging them thangs, Ben Folks, until uh, Raphael Fazeev uncorked the uh, the spinning kick that ends up knocking Brad Riddell out. Uh, this was two dudes that I would not want to fight, even if I were a high-level UFC lightweight, especially, like, can you imagine, what on earth would you possibly have to gain at this point by fighting Brad Riddell? If you are anyone in that division, uh, he's he's going to be a tough-ass fight. And it's not like he's a big-name opponent. And now he's coming off a loss to Rafael Fazeev. No thanks. I'll wait for somebody else, personally. You, you're saying that that's when they call you up, that's when you're like, you know what? See, what had happened was I just got back from the buffet. I start going, <coughs> just now. Chest infection. <laughs> I got this chest infection. Plus a rib injury. You, you know what? Uh... I, I get, though, what we're saying here that when you looked at this fight card and if you said to yourself, hmm, which fight here do I think will leave me with a conflicted feeling of sadness and and yet awe, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily have pegged this one. That's right. And and also, like, Raphael Fazeev talking afterwards about it, about, like, how he didn't know whether he was happy or sorry to have gone out there and knocked out his friend. And it's true that, like, you know, Fazeev is just looking so comfortable for so much of that fight. And then when Brad Riddell starts to put together what was looking like his best round, and then boom, just wheel kick up the side of your head. And that was a, a good, merciful stoppage on that one because it was pr it looked initially a little bit quick, but you're like, yeah, you just saved a man from having to hurt his friend unnecessarily and the friend from having to be hurt unnecessarily. And yet, like, afterwards, all the stuff Fazeev was saying, it was just like, oh, man, like... On one hand, it makes you like 
Fazeev a little bit more, but he was just like, like he said some quote I saw where he was just like, you know, hey, if I do something wrong and hurt my friends, I say I'm sorry. So I had to say I'm sorry to him. And it's just like, well, shit. <laughs> now, I, now I feel like we all did you guys a disservice by putting you in this position. Yeah. Uh, my question, I guess, is how good of friends can you still be with someone after they spin kick you in the face? I know that uh, these fighters are a different breed of dude. So maybe there's a maybe there's a different spot in your heart that you can still hold for this guy. But like, I don't know, man, guy spin kicked you right in the face, heel straight to the cheekbone and uh, knocked you out on well, that. Isn't that going to be like, even if even if you're still friends with the guy, isn't that going to be kind of kicking around in your mind? Yeah, but I mean, you would have done it to him if you could have. I guess. I guess so. Didn't, though. I mean, you know, I I think you hear sometimes from fighters who talk about how after a fight, especially when you you go a few rounds and you go through it and you feel this sort of special connection with somebody afterwards. And that's how sometimes we end up seeing people who hated each other before. And at the end, even if they're not going to go, you know, get a studio apartment together or anything, they still have gained a begrudging respect for one another and they feel differently about each other. I do wonder how it is when you were already friends. I mean... On one hand, knowing like, okay, his career went up by virtue of mine going down a little bit. But at the same time, you both said yes, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I think that it, once you get to that point where you were both willing to sign on the line that is dotted for this fight, then uh, win or lose, you, you kind of both made the same agreement. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, next question this week comes to us. From rock and roll guitar player Alex Skolnick okay. of such bands as Testament, as well as Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Well, all right. He writes, hey, who has two thumbs tattooed on his chest and knocked Jimmy Crude the fuck out? What a performance uh, by Jamal Hill. In what looked like basically two punches on the feet and one on the ground, making Jimmy look like he went through a 15-minute war. You interested in Santos uh, bringing him what he wished for in a fight against... Oh, Santa, I'm sorry. Bringing him what he wished for in a fight against Snacks Costa. Uh, I don't know. Do you think that that's, do you think that's a good call-out for Jamal Hill here? We've got this win, obviously, at light heavyweight against Jimmy Crute. He's... Uh, 10 and one overall he's only ufc loss was this first round uh tko by paul craig back in june now he's righted the ship with a pretty impressive stoppage of jimmy crute where not only did he stop the guy in, in 48 seconds but he had hurt him moments before that it's like hurt the guy twice within the first minute of the fight and ended up getting the stoppage here is paulo costa the guy you want to call out in the wake of that Maybe. I mean, the UFC seems to think we're going to make Paulo Costa be a light heavyweight now, right? So, I wonder what Paulo Costa and his people are thinking as far as next moves after this weird last showing, right? So, maybe some of it will depend there, but if you're Jamal Hill, I can see how you'd look at it and be like, well, that guy still has a name. He is definitely one of MMA's weirdsmobiles, so he brings a little bit of attention that way. And plus, I feel like maybe I'd knock that guy out. And all those calculations make sense to me. And shit, man, you tell me, Jamal Hill versus Paulo Costa could easily headline one of these fight night events. Easily. Like, we'd watch that, you know, just for the sheer violence factor inherent in it. Um, plus the, the fact that Paulo Costa is probably going to be 
a weirdo about the whole thing. So, sure. I could see it. All right, I'm going to put these next two together because they lead us into round number one. This one from old school UFC announcer Rich Gogo Goins, who writes, So watching this absolute warrior and arguably top three all-time fighter defeat Rob Font made me question the level in which MMA has evolved. Mainly, has it? I mean, we want to think the sport evolves and fighters get better, right? Well, if so, just imagine prime Aldo versus Font. So my question is, how much has MMA evolved in the last 10 years? Is Aldo, and don't forget Glover, the 53-year-old who just won the light heavyweight title, an exception to the rule, or has the sport reached its peak? And then the next one, uh, from our guy at Pissed Off Lawyer over there on Twitter, he writes, let's say Dominic Cruz goes out there next Saturday, does all of his Cruz stuff against Pedro Munoz and gets the win. If that happens, former champ Cruz, former champs Cruz, Dillashaw, and Aldo will all be highly ranked bantamweights in the year 2021. Have You have to award one of these three the next title shots after the eventual Aldo-Yan 2 fight, while the other two fight each other. Who do you pick for the title shot, and why is it Aldo? Uh, first of all, how about this notion that Jose Aldo still being incredibly good is a sign that, that MMA has not evolved much over the last 10 years, because I'm going to say that's, that's not true. Yeah. I think it's more a sign of, uh, how good Jose Aldo is. And honestly, and I think you saw some of it in this fight, his ability to adapt to the fighter he is now and the body he has now. And also the weight class that he's in now. Like, he, you saw some in this fight where he realized, okay, I'm down at bantam weight. I, I'm maybe not quite as fast and dynamic as I used to be, but I do have power in this division against some of these guys that maybe I didn't necessarily have in with just you know one solid right hand to create a whole lot of problems for you kind of power when I was at featherweight. And so I, I think that. It's really impressive to see him do it, but I wouldn't look at it and say we could, from Jose Aldo's performance, extrapolate about the entire sport or even the entire division. Yeah. I think you just got to look around at sport-wide, the kind of fighting we see today versus the kind of fighting we would have seen back in 2010, 2011. It's pretty obvious. Like there's, as I have say time and time again, there are a bunch of dudes out there in the UFC and elsewhere these days fighting like it's a damn video game so much so that like, it doesn't even really distinguish them that much at this point that, you know, Raphael Faziv is out here knocking Brad Riddell out with like weird spinning kicks. And like, it's an awesome knockout and we all like to see it, but uh, we're not going to be talking about it three months from now. Cause somebody yeah, else no, is going to do some crazy fucking shit. Right. And if he had done that in 2010, we would have lost our fucking minds. Yeah. As we did whenever anybody occasionally did some shit like that back then. And also this thing, like I mentioned Glover Teixeira, um, that is, I would say, an exception to the rule and also a little bit of circumstances of that particular division yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, what about title shot? If if Dominic Cruz gets the win against Pedro Munoz and then we have Aldo, Dillashaw, and... Cruz all kind of circling around. Obviously, we've still got business to take care of here, uh, potentially between Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling. But do you, do you have a favorite there? Do you have a guy you like if you had to do a title shot for one of the three? You know, I don't know if there's a, a way you could really fuck it up too much yeah. choosing from one of those three. But the the old school WEC guy in me is just still dying to see Jose Aldo and Dominic Cruz. 
in the year 2022, perhaps. Like that, wouldn't that just be fun? Yeah, wouldn't that just be one for the for the old heads? Maybe maybe we get that blue canvas out of the storage unit. <laughs> now you're talking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Who doesn't like that? We get Joe Martinez to announce that one. Uh, maybe we get Dave Scholler to come back in here and uh, do the stare downs at the weigh in. Yeah, we just have ourselves a good time, man. Getting the band back together. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for Listener Mail. We are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Remember, if you have a question, a comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Here we go, though, with round number one. some nice moments in the early going here in the main event of this fight night card over there on ESPN plus uh darn near won the first round probably but then down the stretch in that first period Jose Aldo went ahead and blasted him right in the face with a couple of straight right hands and that told the tale I think for how the rest of this was going to go Rob Font was game the whole way for the full 25 minutes but uh, Jose Aldo was just still out there looking like Jose Aldo, having the edge and the power, you know, getting the uh, the crafty takedowns and ground control when he needed to do it, uh, controlling the pace of this thing, getting the getting the win. Goes out there, does what he has to do to get the win. Uh, and frankly, at this point, looking like maybe he should have been at 135 this whole time. Not that I want to uh, discredit or take away from anything that he did at featherweight where he was one of, if not the greatest of all time, but he's, here he is, 35 years old, still having success down there in the lighter weight. What, what are we to take away from this performance where, uh, he's out there? You want to call Rob Font a young gun, even though he and Jose Aldo are actually approximately the same age, but like, uh, he, he's out there beating this current generation of fighters. What, what, what do we take away from that? You know, I, I watched this one the morning after, and it was a little weird because, um, on actual fight night, I missed it because I, I took my daughter's ice skating. This is how they got me to agree to take them ice skating on the the, the future night of uh, Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley 2. Which, by the way, no one told me, Chad, that when you go down to the ice rink of a Saturday evening, uh, it's a scene for local middle school youths. Okay. And when you have two daughters and you see a bunch of like 13 and 14 year old girls uh, doing 13, 14 year old girls stuff down at the ice rink, it feels like being visited by the ghost of Christmas future. A little bit. Yeah. At one point, we were skating by a group of girls who were just huddled talking on the ice. And I, we just as we skated by, I just heard one of them say, Yes, I heard. Why do you think I'm crying? And then turned and stormed off as best she was able on ice skates. And I went, Oh, Jesus Christ. This is this is coming for me. And there's yeah. nothing I could do to stop it. I get home. I'm checking the Twitter feed. And people afterwards, you know, are talking about, Oh, I, I think it was uh, Jose Aldo in all five rounds. I got Jose Aldo uh, as, as a shutout here. And then imagine my surprise. I go to watch the fight Sunday morning. I watch Rob Font storming out the gates in like the first three and a half minutes of round one. And I'm going, what the fuck were these people talking about, man? And it's like, as soon as I had the thought, Jose Aldo landed a straight right down the pipe. And I go, oh, okay. 
I get it now. Yeah. Damn near finishes him at the end of the round after sort of looking like he was uh, in over his head early on in the round. And you could just see him consistently making these adjustments and honestly fighting fucking smart because you, we've long known the book on Jose Aldo, even way back when he was the dominant featherweight champion was he might get tired later in a fight. If you can put the pace on him a little bit and make him work, he might get tired. He might just have to survive some of those later rounds. We saw it in some of those fights, like with Mark Hominick. Uh, we saw other people sort of banking on it, even if they, they weren't able to actually wear him out. And you, you could hear it in Rob Vaughn's corner a little bit where they were sort of hoping like maybe this guy is going to start to slow down and tire out. And he was very smart about using opportunities to get this fight to the ground and keep it there when he could and buy a little bit of rest time for yourself while you're still in the eyes of the judges winning this thing. Like it felt like a both a really impressive technical performance by Jose Aldo, but also a smart performance by Jose Aldo. And honestly, at this point, it feels like everybody in the damn sport is rooting for Jose Aldo just because of what we've seen him go through and come back from. And the, what he has shown about kind of his character as a fighter over years and a couple different careers, basically, in a couple different eras. Yeah, you wrote about this again last week on, on comainevent.com. I thought it was interesting. I guess it was this week because it was in the wake of this fight. But back in 2015 at UFC 194, when Conor McGregor knocked Jose Aldo out in 13 seconds, which at the time that it happened was shocking to see, uh, yeah. even for people who had followed the sport for a long time. And I think even for people who knew that Conor McGregor had a pretty high ceiling in this sport. And maybe there was a feeling around Jose Aldo that, oh no, this guy was so great for so many years. And now the thing that he is going to be remembered for is as this sort of transitional champion to Conor McGregor and as a guy who got knocked out cold in 13 seconds. Well, since then, obviously the credits didn't roll. The movie didn't end. Jose Aldo just had to go on with his life And he has lived seemingly several more lives in combat sports since then. And here we find him, as I said, midway through his 30s, 35 years old, and currently riding a three-fight win streak in the bantamweight division, at least leaving open the possibility that he will write another great chapter in his career. Does that seem improbable to you, that he's been able to sort of like move on past what seemed like a career-defining loss and continue to very much sort of control his own destiny and continue to be a guy who probably deserves way, way more credit in terms of where he stands on the all-time greater greatest fighter list. Well, I mean, it is improbable. That's one of the things that makes it so impressive, honestly, uh, especially because, you know, you mentioned the Conor McGregor loss, but then it's also, he came back, won that interim belt over Frankie Edgar, you know, we all remember that that image of Conor McGregor standing up in the crowd, still pretending like he might one day fight at featherweight again. LOL. And then he loses those back-to-back fights to Max Holloway, in which he just gets sort of overwhelmed by Max Holloway's volume, as plenty of good fighters have. But it did seem like a very clear passing of the torch at the time. That Jose Aldo's time is done, Max Holloway's time is beginning at featherweight, and now is the time to start writing career eulogies for Jose Aldo, and it's just a matter of how sad is it going to get. And then when he announced, okay, I'm going down to bantamweight, I think we both agreed at the time that that sounded like an instance of the drop-in-weight class being the fighter's false friend. 
Because for one thing, we went, man, I remember watching you struggle like hell to make featherweight. Now you're going to go down 10 pounds at your age, you know, in your mid-30s, and expect us to believe that it's going to be for the better. And it has been. You know, like, he maybe got off to a little bit of a rocky start there, but you look at what he's doing lately, they're putting him in the kind of fights that seem as if they are designed to find out what Jose Aldo has left. And he keeps passing those tests and keeps looking good doing it. And it's the kind of thing that we aren't used to seeing in fight sports. It usually doesn't happen this way. It usually happens the other way. And that's one of the things that makes it so amazing, I think. Yeah. Uh Jose Aldo had one loss very early in his MMA career, but to the extent that it's germane to this conversation, Jose Aldo's career losses essentially are Conor McGregor, Max Holloway twice, Alexander Volkanovsky, that Marlon Marais fight that was a split decision at UFC 245 that a lot of people, including the UFC, just decided to treat like Jose Aldo had won, yeah. uh, and then Peter Yan at UFC 251. Like As a list of losses, that'll stack up with almost anybody out there. Uh, one thing that I did want to ask you, I hope it's, it's not too silly of a question. God knows we don't want to ask any silly questions on this show. Uh, money aside, and that's a big aside, I admit, but would you rather be <laughs> Conor McGregor or would you rather be Jose Aldo just in terms of, of like mixed martial arts right now, 2021? Well, the money aside is a, a big thing, and it's really the only thing that could potentially change your answer. Because if you look at how they're viewed by their peers right now, how they're viewed by the general MMA public, especially the, the harder cores deeper within the MMA bubble, you have to admit that Jose Aldo has the, the better reputation. Pe- Jose Aldo seems like he is more respected and beloved by fellow fighters than Conor McGregor is. Everybody kind of looking at Conor McGregor like, mm, this fucking asshole. That thing that Anthony Smith was saying about, oh, he's he's mad because he's not one of the boys anymore. He's he's outside of that and he can't get back in. And Jose Aldo is like a respected elder statesman of the boys. Yeah. And not and, only that, and, when we make a list of greatest of all time, Jose Aldo is going to be right up there. Conor McGregor? Mm, he'll be up there as the highest earner of all yeah, time. Yeah, depends on what we're ranking, but... As just like a, a straight fighter, probably not. Probably not as high up there as Jose Aldo. True. All right, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to uh, round number two. Ben, Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this, this week? Well, again, we continue to talk about Khabib Nurmagomedov's Eagle FC mm-hmm. promotion. Even though I, I don't think either one of us have seen a single second of Eagle FC actual fighting events. But... Saw this come across the old the old Twitter wire from Mark Raimondi. He writes, Eagle FC's United States debut card has its main event, Tyrone Spong versus Bigfoot Silva in a heavyweight MMA bout January 28th in Miami, per officials. Khabib Nurmagomedov's promotion will also have the return of Rashad Evans on the same card. Are you fucking kidding me? Tyrone Spong versus Bigfoot Silva, huh? You, what you're telling me is that basically Eagle FC came out and said, it has come to our attention that Bigfoot Silva is still alive. And frankly, we find this unacceptable. We are taking measures to rectify the situation as we speak. Florida, will you sanction that? And Florida, the head snapped up from a nap on top of their desk, cleared away the nudie mags and the fireworks and said, yeah, sure. Where's that rubber stamp at? Approved. 
Are you fucking kidding me? Also, can we appreciate, Chad, the delicious irony? This is Khabib Nurmagomedov's promotion. Khabib, the guy who retired on time, young, undefeated, refused to be goaded back into MMA despite many different meals at many different restaurants with Dana White, many attempts to talk him back into it. And his promotion is going to be the one that gets Rashad Evans out of retirement. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm, fucking kidding me. Have you seen the Eagle FC logo? Somehow I don't think I have. Now check your email because it... I bet it's in there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you were on a high school football team and this was your okay. logo, you would be like, I don't know. It's all right, I guess. You know, maybe maybe in a few years we can get a new one, but this will be fine for now on the side of the helmets. Well, that's that's devastating what you just said right there. I, you, you think you're not. You think you're taking it easy on them. I'm now now I got to look for this. Is it, do you think it's in spam? Should I check the 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 spam filter? I mean, I'm just saying. Oh no, I see it. Okay, there we go. Yeah, yeah it does. You can, you can picture that on the side of a helmet. Yeah, high school football helmet. Like if We're that was your to, college logo, you'd be like, "Wow, you guys saved some money on this." <laughs> We're trying to emphasize the sleekness of the eagle, I think, and its speed and flight. That feels like what we're going for. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. Uh, ben, Dusko uh, Todorovic busted one of my parlays over the weekend. Beat Maki Patolo, first round TKO in the featured prelim over there at this UFC Fight Night event. Uh, lo and behold, though, I didn't know what this dude had overcome in order to just to make it to this UFC on ESPN event. Uh this dude got hit by a damn car, Ben Folks. This is his quote from the uh, the post-fight event. Here's, he says, it was a delicate situation. By the end of July, <laughs> I got hit by a car. The guy ran over me while I was crossing, so he messed up my left leg pretty good. And I knew that the call was going to come. So I was thinking at the time of trying to prepare for a possible bout. So when the contract came, I was still not training properly or anything. I couldn't, you know, use my foot the right way. So there were definitely a lot of setbacks during this camp and difficulties all regarding that injury. I didn't want to talk with anyone about it. I didn't even want to let my family know. Just my girl knew. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. Are you fucking kidding me? Got hit by a car? Messed up your foot? There's some there's some graphic ass pictures on here too if you want to see them. No, nope, the, I do not. In the MMA Junkie story. Uh, this man was on crutches for three weeks, couldn't use his, his, his foot. He had to go to physical therapy. Then he irritates the injury while he's doing warmups for this fight. Still goes out there, beats Maki Patolo. Are you fucking kidding me? I've heard a lot of crazy, this is what happened to me during my training camp stories from MMA fighters mm-hmm. over the years. I got hit by a car is a pretty good one. You yeah. fucking kidding me? Couldn't use my foot the right way. Also, Chad, I hope that I never get hit by a car. But if I do, I also hope that I can treat it with this kind of minimalist concern to refer to it as simply a delicate situation. (laughs) How was it when you got hit by the car? Well, I'll tell you. It was a delicate situation. Yeah. Not good to me. Got hit by a car. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Chad, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to stand by it. The Gooch would have won if he hadn't lost, bro. The Gooch was on his way. He was winning basically every damn minute of this fight with your dude, Sergio Pettis. Go ahead and do it. I know you want to do it. Yo, Serge! There it is. And then... In round four, Sergio Pettis goes out there and at this point knows, you know what? We're probably not going to win this one on the scorecards. We got we to gotta get loose, man. We got to try some stuff. We got to take some chances. How many times have we seen fighters go out in that situation? The corner's telling them. They know it. Everybody knows it. The announcers are saying, it. this guy, you know, you, got, you need a finish to win this one. You really got to uh, open up and, and take, take some chances, take what comes with it. And they just don't do it. They continue fighting the exact same, and they end up losing the decision that we all saw coming. This is one where your man, Young Surge, goes out there and is going to throw a combo head kick, let the Gooch go ahead and duck that, and then pop his head right back up like a meerkat looking for danger. And then that's when the spinning back fist whips around and finds him right on the jaw, and it's lights out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason that we don't see it happen that much is because it's fucking hard, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like your corner can be like, hey, you know what? How long have we been doing this? 23 minutes or so? In this last couple minutes here, uh, why don't you do the knockout play? Yeah. That, that we, let's that let's we try drew to up. knock him out now. Yeah. yeah. You know that one thing that we drew it. up, the, the uh, guaranteed knockout? Let's do that. Let's do the knockout yeah. thing. Do the knockout thing, man. How about this time when you go up to bat, hit a home run? So I guess that begs the question, uh, did you come out of this feeling better for young Serge or worse for the Gooch? Because, uh, wow, hey, man, I, I love to see good things happen for young Sergio Jerome Pettis. And I, I'm glad that he is he got this big win. He seems like a, a cool guy for Bellator to have for the time being as its bantamweight champion. We'll talk about the Grand Prix in a minute. I think that's an interesting thing uh, that's coming up. But, man, also... Hard not to feel bad for uh, Horaguchi here, who had had such a good fight, who looked so good in the in the lead up to this, and then ducks the kick, and it's almost like he was about to be like, "Missed me, missed yeah. me, dog," and then the spinning back fist right in the chops, and he's he's done. I I, I felt bad for the guy. I gotta say. Well, yeah, I mean, I felt bad for him, and I think everybody likes Horaguchi, and so everybody was sad to see that happen to him. Um, but how how do you not? also feel good for Sergio Pettis, yeah. right? Because especially uh, there's that clip of him after the fight where he's jumping up on the cage, his face is smeared with blood, all that. You know, he's looking out there just sort of mad-dogging the entire crowd. Like, what? Who among you wants to be next? And then spots his mom, and you see his face immediately change. There's Then he's a 10-year-old boy all over again. It's mom! And, like, he's, like, smiling at her, telling her he loves her and stuff. And he went, like... As sad a moment as that is for Horaguchi, it's a damn feel-good moment for Sergio Pettis. And so, I I don't know, maybe that's just a reminder of how the fight game can serve you up uh, just sort of crushing lows and high highs at the same exact time. But mostly if I'm Sergio Pettis, I'm thinking like, okay, I beat Horaguchi, I pulled the rabbit out of the hat there when I needed it. Um, Now I would like to not fight him again, though. I would like to move on and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this Bellator bantamweight tournament, but uh, let's let's try to keep me away from him for the future because that guy is really fucking good. And 
I mean, I saw that clip of Sergio practicing this exact move in the gym uh, floating around Twitter afterwards, which, you know, I, I'm i just glad to be able to see that because you know how people are going to be like fluke, lucky punch. But hey, like he had this in his arsenal. It was a, a high risk, high reward kind of move, but he had it in the toolbox. He pulled it out when he needed it and it fucking worked. Yeah. So give him the credit that he deserves for that. But also maybe I don't want to run this one back if I'm young Serge. Yeah. Uh, well, that could be a problem if you're going to be in the same bracket as the guy. Uh, but I think that actually is an interesting question. So Bellator announces it's $1 million 2022 men's bantamweight Grand Prix, an eight-fighter affair here. Uh, you're going to have Sergio Pettis, Kyoji Horiguchi, Magomed Magomedov, James Gallagher, Leandro Higo, Patchy Mix, Ralphion Stotts, and Juan Archuleta are your starting eight, let's say, because we know sometimes you don't always end up with the same yep. group you started. And maybe 135 pounds, maybe you got a better chance of everybody sticking around. Bellator is going to space this thing out over the entire year, we're led to believe, which timing-wise, maybe not great, but in, in in terms of like keeping the bracket together and being able to handle various injuries that could crop up, maybe that's the best thing you do. I think they announced this before the fight, right? Uh, so it was yeah. it was already interesting that you were going to have Horiguchi and Pettis in the same bracket. In my opinion, it becomes even more interesting now. And I guess my question for you, Ben, if you were the, the Bellator bracketologist... I know they got one on on the payroll over there, San Jose. They got a bracketologist to put this thing together. How do you do this? Do you put the Gooch and Sergio Pettis on opposite sides of the bracket? Or are you a real son of a bitch and you say, rematch. First round rematch, the Gooch versus Sergio Pettis. That's how we're opening up the Bantamweight tournament. Well... I mean, if you did do the Gooch versus Sergio Pettis, it would it would get our attention, right? After this one, don't you think that maybe even some of the people who were sitting this one out and weren't going to sign up for Showtime, weren't going to watch this Bellator thing, we're going to kind of follow it along on Twitter, and then they, you have on Friday night, everybody's out there talking about how fucking amazing this was, and they we're sharing the highlight over and over and over again. You see that maybe that is a smart, savvy way to get to convert some of those people right when you need them, yeah. you know, to, to be like, look, you heard about it. Now we're going to do it again, brother. Don't you want to not have to hear about it secondhand again? Wouldn't you like to be able to follow along live? Come on, join the team. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of smart. It's also though, if you're Sergio Pettis, are you going, Oh, okay. Yeah. How does that phone call go? <laughs> you know, I, I sank the half court shot and instead of handing me the, the big check, you went, no, I don't think so. Do it again. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting mix of dudes, though, in this in this uh, tournament. You know who is fun? Ralphion Stotts. Did you see this video he posted in the elevator? I did not. Oh, man, do yourself a favor and look it up, because he finds himself in an elevator with a couple of other Bell Bellator bantamweights, I believe Patchy Mix being one of them. Uh, and in his own words, uh, it was very tense. You could cut the tension with a knife. So I figured, why not take my phone out and start talking shit? Uh, so he does that, and it's it's pretty entertaining, man. And now we got this bracket, all these guys in it together. I'm looking forward to it, man. James Gallagher, another guy in here uh, who could do some nice things for Bellator. We, he at times he kind of looks like Bellator's off-brand Conor McGregor. Uh, but uh, you know, we put him in this bracket. And we'll we'll see where we can go here. Like this is I'm 
we have talked at length before sort of about the ups and downs of Bellator doing these Grand Prix tournaments because A, everybody likes a tournament, uh, but B, sometimes it feels like maybe that's Scott Coker's only idea. Like, I'll do a, I'll do a tournament. So I don't know. Like, I, I'm pretty excited for this Bantamweight tournament, but at the same time, doesn't smack of the thing that's going to, like, break Bellator through or anything like that. Really? Because, I mean, that's what we were saying before. You're leaning into the thing that you do that the UFC won't do. Yeah. And I, mean, I think it's going to be awesome. I'm just saying, like, this is another thing that sounds like it's kind of for the hardcores who may well already be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. But I also think that the the featherweight tournament kind of showed us the ability that the tournament can have to build momentum as it goes. Yeah. Like just a snowball rolling downhill. And I think when you do that, you solve one of Bellator's problems, which is just getting people to be aware that you are doing stuff. Yeah. And getting interested in seeing it. And especially because you're creating this sort of narrative through line where we're following it from one round to the next. Like... People might not start out following the tournament, but if enough people start talking about it, there are interesting fights along the way. At a certain point, they go, okay, damn it, I'm in. I I, I think it's, especially because you have limited options as Bellator to, to address that problem, this is one of the better ways you can do it. And also, honestly, one of the more cost-effective ways, rather than just trying to sign a bunch of big-name free agents and hope for the best there. But I do want to say, at, so, at what point, Will we stop making a million dollars sort of the default for big tournament prize in MMA? Because it feels like it feels like one million dollars has been a sort of like dangled out there sports prize since I was a kid. Yeah. Since the eighties. You're saying you we should adjust for inflation? I mean, do you remember the film No Holds Barred, Chad? Yes. Of course you do. Because Hulk Hogan in there as a very Hulk Hogan-ish pro wrestler. Uh, I believe the offer that he was given there was to fight Zeus. You know, we're going we're gonna to have a wrestling match or maybe it was a tournament or something. Uh, and the winner was going to get a million dollars tax-free. I remember yeah. him emphasizing that. A million dollars tax-free. And that was like 1990 or something. It's 2021. We, we keep hearing about inflation. And the the money just doesn't spend the same way it does. And yet we're still out here talking Dr. Evil style, $1 million every time we do one of these. At a certain point, we're going to have to bump it up. Yeah. We know that, right? I mean, if nothing else, Bellator should make a big deal, right, about how their $1 million winner actually gets $1 million when he wins the tournament. Like, from what I understand, the PFL tournament is sort of like, well, if you win all your fights, then it's... Then you earn a million dollars cumulatively. Yeah, you accumulate you accumulate a million dollars throughout the tournament. Bellator, I'm pretty sure, when you win the tournament, they just slide you the cool million. They bring a Halliburton suitcase full of one dollar bills with yeah, consecutive handcuffed a fifty cent wrist consecutive uh, serial numbers. But <laughs> uh, don't you also think Scott Coker, as a promoter, one of the both positives and negatives about him is that he is not the guy to go out there and aggressively offer these contrasts between himself and other promotions. Yeah. I will say the guy to be like, they're bullshit. We're the real deal. uh, When I interviewed Scott Coker about the Bellator, or I'm sorry, the strike force heavyweight grand prix about how they, you know, there was, they kind of set it up. They wanted to do Alistair Overeem versus Fedor Emelianenko in the second round, like they would both win their fights and then they would have a, yeah. have them on pay-per-view and that just blew up in their face because Fedor lost to 
uh, Fab Verdum, and then the Verdum versus Overeem fight was a stinker, and then Overeem ended up not being in the tournament anymore after that. And I was like, did you learn anything from that? And Scott was like, well, if there's a fight you want, don't wait. Don't wait to make it. So I wonder if we do see Sergio Pettis versus the Gooch in the first round here. Be interesting. We'll have to wait and see. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. C269. Nice. The last pay-per-view of the year for the UFC, and a pretty good one, at least on paper. Charles Oliveira defending his title against Dustin Poirier at lightweight, and Amanda Nunes defending her title against Juliana Pena at women's bantamweight. Also on the main card, Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio, Kai Car of France against Cody Garbrandt, and Rulian Pavia against Sean O'Malley. Uh, so a good pay-per-view card to close out the year. Let's talk Dustin Poirier versus Chucky Olives. This this is the one we've kind of been waiting for since uh, since it it appeared that this was the fight we were going to be angling toward. And of course, the specter of the Irishman looms over all of it. Uh, if you had to guess, do you have a do you have a an inkling, a prognostication about what happens when we get? Uh, Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira actually in the cage together at long last to see who is the undisputed UFC 155 pound champion. I mean, I feel like once I start thinking about it, it's really tough for me to talk myself into thinking that either guy could lose. You know (laughs) what I mean? Because it's easy to talk yourself into one of them probably will that that one of them can win because both of them are just super hot right now, you know, and seem to have really come into their own as fighters. They seem to have so much confidence and uh, that that mix that it's hard to find where you're an experienced enough veteran that you're you're comfortable and you're poised in there, but you're not such a veteran that you started to go downhill. And that is a, a tough sweet spot. And sometimes it's a sweet spot that just, for some people, it seems to last about five minutes. And these guys are both sort of settled in there right now. And so it does seem like a perfect time to be matching them up here. And yet it's also tough to to make a call here. My gut says Dustin Poirier. But I also think that it's possible that my vision is clouded by just liking Dustin Poirier. Yeah, yeah. Nine wins in a row at this point for Charles Oliveira. In fact, uh, that win over Clay Guida that we talked about earlier in the show from June of 2018 started this run of of consecutive victories for Charles Oliveira, capped by his win over Michael Chandler at UFC 262 for the vacant lightweight championship. Uh, On the other side of the coin, Dustin Poirier obviously um, had that kind of lopsided and somewhat heartbreaking loss to Habib Nurmagomedov at UFC 242, but he's won three in a row since then, the last two back-to-back, of course, against Conor McGregor. So it's been been an awful damn long time since anyone was able to beat Charles Oliveira, but I kind of agree with you. I feel like this fight is kind of a push, man. I have no idea what the actual odds are, but it seems very situational to me. Like if if you're Dustin Poirier and you can keep it where you want it, you probably have the edge, but at the same time, if you wind up somewhere that you don't want to be, 
against Charles Oliveira, that dude is very dangerous and he can, he can stop you. He can stop you in a minute. So, uh, you better, it's, it's, it just seems like a tense fight to st- from start to finish. And, and frankly, I'm really looking forward to how nervous it's going to make me feel for 25 minutes. Yeah, the odds I'm looking at right now, Dustin Poirier, a slight favorite at minus 160. Uh, you can get Charles Oliveira for around plus 135 most places. Um, if you're Charles Oliveira's camp going into this one, do you tell yourself we need to win this one on the mat? That's where we're going to beat this guy. Maybe, but, you know, uh, Oliveira, he looked capable enough against Michael Chandler, right? And like yeah. he's, he's looked good on the feet with a couple of TKO and KO wins against Jared Gordon and Nick Lentz in, in recent memory. He's still kind of a specialist by trade. So I think if you if you can get it to a place on the ground where you have a dominant position and you feel like you can work that submission game, that's that's what you want probably more than anything else. But at the same time, all is not lost if you are if you have to start every round on the feet with Dustin Poirier like they do. Uh, I just think if you're Charles Oliveira, you probably want to avoid a Dustin Poirier style fight if that makes sense. Like you don't want to 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 let him kind of grind on you and keep you on the feet and like make it a dirty slog of a fight where he kicks the ever loving shit out of your legs and stuffs you up against the fence and, and punches you right in your beautiful face a million times. Like you want to do what you can to, to dictate the terms, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would think if you're Dustin Poirier and you're looking at this one and you're going, you know what? Hey, he he found a way to beat Michael Chandler there, but when they're standing on the feet trading blows, mm, he wobbled on the tightrope a little bit. Yeah, that yeah. might be something you could think about. But also, like if you're scouting that fight for takeaways as Dustin Poirier, you're also being like, yeah, that guy's got a uh, a hook that yeah you might think you're out of range of, but it turns out you're not. Yeah, you know, and and that create some different or some, some difficult situations for you on the, the entry and the exit against that dude. It's going to be a good one, man. I'm looking forward to, to that one. And then of course the women's bantamweight title fight, Amanda Nunes, uh, I assume a huge favorite over Juliana Pena, but we were talking last week about how both Chael Sonnen and Misha Tate weighed in last week saying they don't think it's out of the question that Juliana Pena will have some, some stuff for Amanda Nunes. Hard for me to believe, but, uh, that's, you know, there are some people saying it. Like, I feel like we keep waiting. We keep waiting for somebody who can have something for Amanda Nunes, and it just hasn't happened yet. She's just better and better and further and further seemingly away from the competition every damn time we see her. Yeah, looking at the odds for that one, you've got Amanda Nunes right now at about minus 900 or minus 800. Yeah. Uh, Juliana Pena at about plus 600. Uh, so... You know, that's the the most lopsided odds on the entire fight card. And when that happens in a co-main event title fight and in a title fight where honestly, it's not like anybody was looking at it and being like, oh, there was a different fight you should have made. This is not the, the person who deserves to fight for the title next. Everybody was kind of looking at it going like, okay, sure. There's nobody else whose name rings out as the most logical next contender who hasn't already had their shot at Amanda Nunes. It might as well be Juliana Pena next. Let's see what happens. That's a testament to just the sheer dominance over time of Amanda Nunes. That even when you get the person who honestly pretty much makes the most sense, it still looks like an absolute can-crushing 
when you just check out the odds before the fight. Yeah. Uh, and yet we've talked a lot about other people that, about how hard it is to to walk that razor blade of being the UFC champion. And Juliana, or I'm sorry, Amanda Nunes has done it in two weight classes for some time now. Uh, and eventually you keep rolling the dice and somebody's going to come along and shock you. I'm not saying that's going to be happening this weekend, but like, I think we underestimate sometimes how hard it is to, to be great as, as maybe simple as that sounds, but especially in a sport like this, uh, it only takes a little bit of a loss of focus or a little bit of like you took, you took too many days off or something like that. And all of a sudden you're, you're not the champ anymore. So, uh, well, you know, whether or not that happens to Amanda Nunes, we we don't know. But she's just been so good for so long that it's just a hard thing to do in this sport. Yeah. What else? Is there is there anything else on this card that you look at and you think that's that's the one I'm looking forward to most of all? I mean, the Kai Car France Cody Garbrandt fight. Yeah. That's a scrap right there, my man. Yep, that's a good that's one. That's what that is. That's a good one. Also, uh, your guy, Santiago Ponzinibbio, back in action here. Yeah. The uh, the Gentaboa, he's going to be out here plying his trade against Jeff Neal. So, I mean, all you know, we'll have the Sean O'Malley show uh, to open yep. the open the card, and then uh, the flyweight and welterweight fights that follow that up. I think are going to be real competitive and entertaining. So, I'm I'm looking forward to this pay per view card all the way around. Frankly, unless you got some good stuff like sprinkled in there on the prelims for those people who got the ESPN plus subscription, but aren't sure they want to take the ride all the way into pay-per-view land. You know, you got Dominic Cruz and, and Pedro Munoz. That one's on the prelims. Josh Emmett, Danny gay on the prelims, uh, Tai Tuivasa. I know you like to, to see him get his jiggle on out there and take on Augusto Sakai. Uh, and then the, the early, early prelims, uh, Ryan Hall back at it. Oh, wow. How about yeah. that by his standards, a very fast turnaround. <laughs> you son of a bitch all right let's go ahead and we'll do just saying stuff ben and then we'll get out of here for this week ben we talked about this in round number two but did you see that big brother showtime anthony pettis went out and put ten thousand dollars he never wanted to see again down on his underdog brother young surge headed into this fight against kyoji horiguchi must have been some nervous moments <laughs> for Anthony Pettis as we get into the championship rounds and they start to stretch on and on. That's when, you know what Anthony Pettis was saying? Let's call the knockout play, dude. Throw the knockout <laughs> thing. The thing that we do. Do the that's... one where you instantly knock him out cold. I mean, I guess I'm just saying that's, you love your brother at that point, right? 10, 10 grand down on young surge. That's, that's brotherly love there. Do you think... That as he's sitting there, maybe in like round three, Anthony Pettis is thinking to himself, I'll tell you what, this motherfucker's not getting much of a Christmas present this year. Well, he, he, if he loses me this 10 grand, uh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to give him a series of poems I wrote as a Christmas <laughs> gift. And I'm most make of the poems are, are going to be about how much money you cost me. <laughs> I'm going to make him a card that has a picture of Santa with like little cotton balls glued on there and googly eyes. Yeah. All I, homemade shit. Uh, a mug I made in my intro to ceramics class down at the community college. I see that the tweet that he sent out that has the screenshot of his betting slip where he had $10,000 down at plus 175 and his payout was uh, $27,500. So a nice take there for Anthony Pettis. But his comment just says Pettis and then like a DNA strand emoji and then a money bag emoji. Okay. Uh, but really like 
maybe some some dripping sweat emojis might have been more <laughs> might have been more accurate. Yeah, the one where the guy's the face is smiling nervously and there's the sweat bead on the forehead. Yeah, that might have been told a little bit more of the story there. But I'm now, I mean, now that he won this fight, now he, he could get a PS5 for Christmas or some shit now. Yeah. Could be a good, good year. Good Christmas over at the Pettis house. Better get Aunt, uh, Sergio something nice, I guess. Yeah. Going to get the card from one of the nice cards from the grocery store card aisle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is for a wonderful brother yeah. on the front. Mm-hmm. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, there I am. I'm scrolling bloody elbow. I see a, a Kamzat Chimeyev headline. And then when I start reading the story, I go, you know what? Maybe we're done. Maybe we're done here just um, with the stories that, that tell us the legend of Kamzat Chimeyev. Because here's the quote. Every day we had fights on the streets of Chechnya. We created history for ourselves on the streets. This is Kamzat Chimeyev to hustle MMA. I've never lost a fight. Thank God, not yet. I definitely didn't with my character. I fought with the boys. I still know this guy. We are friends now. He is in the 11th grade. I'm in the 5th grade. He was not that big, but bigger than me anyway. I'm near the school. I don't remember. There was a brawl. I say, let's go, and we went. He started throwing me from right to left for about 10 minutes. Then he got tired, and I started hitting him. I'm just saying, if you're telling me fight stories from the 5th grade, (laughs) we've... We've reached a saturation point. Yeah, you think we've I already feel. heard uh, Kamzat Chimaev's stories? And so now he's like, all right, well, here's one from the fifth grade. Middle school and onward. That is all that I'm drawing a line right here. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that's nice of you to take the middle school stories. I mean, if you got mainly I'm choosing the middle school stories because I'm still thinking about that awesome middle school story I heard uh, about, uh, who was it? Uh, I can't remember now. the uh, her name. I, I'm blanking on. Uh, she was a silver medalist wrestler. Uh, she fought Ronda Rousey. Sarah McMahon. Sarah McMahon. Why couldn't I think of Sarah McMahon's name? A a friend of a friend had gone to middle school with Sarah McMahon and told me this story about Sarah McMahon beating up like sort of a rich girl bully at their middle school and how it, for every other girl at the middle school, it was like a feel good moment, like a TV <laughs> special moment where the bully gets hers, gets what's coming to her from the tough ass wrestling kid. And she's like, like 40 years old, still thinking about it. Like, Oh man, I remember when Sarah McMahon put it on this chick and she totally had it coming. I will allow that. Middle okay. school and onward. You start talking about the fifth grade? Mm-mm. No. I'm sorry. No. I'm just saying. Okay. Just saying. Wow. All right. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Remember, we're over at the Patreon all week. So check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. Come on over and join the team. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, I'm just saying, if you're, if you're going to tell me even a middle school story, it better be pretty good. And that Sarah McMahon one is good. If you're going to, also, if you're going to, if there's good, not that she told it, you heard it from somebody else, but if there's going to be stories about you beating someone up in middle school, it better be a situation where we can all agree on it, right? Like if you're going to beat someone up in middle school, I want it to be a moment where everyone else in your class was like, yeah, way to go. They need to be standing on the lunch tables cheering for your ass. Now, see, I'd like to hear the other girl's song. The Rich Bully. I wonder what she's thinking. I mean, she's probably married to a college. Not thinking about it too much at all. I mean, at least if you get beat up by someone as you're, when you're a kid, later on you could be like, oh yeah, she, made, she went to the UFC. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. That ain't too shabby, right? Doesn't look too bad on the old resume. Talk about Jose Aldo's loss. What about me getting beat up in middle school by this girl who went to be in the UFC? Same same kind of thing. Meanwhile, I'm over here shorting stocks or whatever.